Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we talk to Professor Diane Coyle. Professor Coyle co-directs the Bennett Institute for Public Policy in Cambridge and is the author of numerous books, as well as the popular blog, Enlightened Economics. In this episode, we discuss what lies behind digital monopolies like Facebook, Apple, and Amazon. We begin by discussing how these tech giants are different from previous monopolies and how economics attempts to explain this. This helps inform us of the challenges that regulators face and why simply breaking them up is not as easy as it sounds. We also critically look at some of the arguments made in defense of digital monopolies and what we still do not know about the debate. We also go on some interesting tangents, such as the idea of companies creating consumer wants through advertisement and manipulation. This episode is quite a bit shorter than usual, but we nonetheless cover a lot of ground. If you do want to find out more, I highly recommend you take a look at the show notes, which go into more detail about everything we discuss. So without any further ado, here's the episode. I used to be a journalist, and because I didn't really know what I was doing, they sent me to cover uh, small companies floating on the stock market. And I turned up in a suite in a hotel in London to report on the flotation of a company called Unipalm, which was the UK's first internet service provider to list on the stock exchange. And they set up a webcam on the Golden Gate Bridge. This must have been 1994 or something. And I looked at it, and there was live traffic crossing the Golden Gate Bridge from a hotel room in London. And I thought, this is amazing. <laughs> I want to find out more about this. And so um, ever, ever on from then started... Um, thinking about the technology. So I wrote my first book in 1997. It's called The Weightless World. And I think actually it was quite prescient about how digital is changing the world. So I think one question that uh, I definitely have when I think or I I see articles about the digital economy and Facebook and uh, Twitter and the like is how new is this really to people? Because we've had, you know, uh, new technology in the past and we've had monopolies like Standard Oil in the past as well. What is it that you would say is really new about the challenges we're facing today? So as you say, there are waves of new technologies And some of the panics people have about the technologies are the same as well. So if you think about electrification, the concerns about disruption or about the um, harms it might do to people were very similar. There are, though, distinctive characteristics about digital technology. One is that the value that's being created is intangible stuff. And the economy as a whole has gone away from manufacturing. It's much more intangible than it used to be. But but these are all that kind of service. And sometimes literally the dematerialization of physical things like books and records and so on. Um, but also because um, uh, there are um, network effects and increasing returns to scale, the companies get very big very quickly. And the dynamics of how these markets behave are really quite different in character Mm. from many conventional economic markets. So one way that I've definitely noticed they're very different in character is when it comes to prices. So normally in traditional economics, when we think about monopolies, we think that we might be worried about them because they'll use their market power to charge consumers more for what the good is actually worth. But when we look at a lot of these tech companies, they're actually free. Like prices don't really seem to be playing a role. When I use Facebook, that's free or YouTube or the like. Um, Could you explain about why that is and um, whether that means we should still be worried about these digital monopolies? uh, Many of the platforms are what economists would call two-sided markets or multi-sided markets. And that means that you're trying to bring together, um, for example, um, 
uh, people who want to buy or buy accommodation, rent accommodation, and people who want to supply it. So you've got users and suppliers. You've got to get them in the right balance to each other. And if one side of that market can switch much more easily than the other, that'll be hard to manage unless you subsidize them. Mm. And often the subsidized price is zero. So consumers very often don't pay anything. And it's all the suppliers on the other side of the market who pay the fee. And um, and that's, in a sense, that's how the competition um, operates. But it's very different from the kinds of classic economic market where you expect the price to reflect the marginal cost of the business of mm. providing the, serv- the service. So it's very much as well, again, that we might not necessarily be the customers that Facebook worries about, where kind of the, the means or the product in itself almost as well, that's being sold to advertisers uh, or, or the like? Or, well, they have, uh, to, they, the have to, they have to get both. They have to get this sort of um, mute, double coincidence of mm. wants, which is what an economic transaction yeah. is. But um, because they are operating to scale where that matching task is, is quite hard, mm. it's, um, it's difficult to do. Loads and loads of digital platform companies get set up most of them go bust because mm. it's really hard to keep the, the right proportion of users on the right. one hand and suppliers on the other. But then when you get to that point, you get uh, network effects clicking in, which means that the more people you have on one side, the better it is for the people on the other side. And that means you get a very rapid feedback loop and they grow really quickly and mm. it's a winner-take-all market. So that kind of that kind of dynamic where it, it, nothing happens for a long time and then all of a sudden they've got the whole market. That's really characteristic of digital markets. If you look back at um, MySpace in 2007 or eight, it looked like it was world dominant. Uh, and then all of a sudden Facebook came along and became many, many times larger than MySpace ever was. So this actually touches on a really interesting argument I think Varian brought up, which is um, that when we think about competition, Varian argues that competition looking at like a fixed point of time, like the traditional way we look at it, is almost wrong. That competition happens across time where you have an established dominant player who is the monopoly now, but the threat is another other players who are active now, but the, the threat that somebody might unsettle you in the future and take that market away. Uh, could that's, you elaborate more about that? That's right. So in our jargon, it would be competition for the market mm. rather than competition in the market. And classic analysis is that you look at who's in a market at a particular time and you want to have four or five or more competitors. Um, in these markets, you're looking to make sure that new entrants can get in if they've got better technology or a better service. Can they dethrone the previous incumbent the way that Facebook dethroned MySpace? So I saw Hal Varian at a conference in Silicon Valley last week, and he does say that the thing that makes him lose sleep at night is that somebody will come along with a better search engine and uh, wipe out Google the way they almost wiped out Yahoo Mm. as a search engine that everybody used because they had a better product. This is really hotly debated, though, at the moment. (laughs) Is it really possible now to dethrone Google in the way that uh, predecessor search engines um, got overturned by, by their better technology. And many, many people, probably including me, much as I like Halvarian, would say, actually, no, they have got such a dominant position now that it needs regulatory intervention to open the market to others to compete for it. And I guess it might also be worth pointing out that Hal Varian possibly has a conflict of interest as well because he's the chief economist of Google. And was one of their early employees, so <laughs> I think he has benefited mightily from their success. Okay, so um, we've kind of talked about um, why monopolies, especially in the digital world, um, are a problem because of these network effects and that creation of a winner-takes-all winner market. Can you talk more about, um, when it comes to the regulatory side, what kind of obstacles we face nowadays and why that might be different to how we faced it in the past? 
One of the issues is that um, the kinds of analysis that competition authorities do um, hasn't really caught up with these kinds of markets. In the past 12 months, there have been a ton of reports um, facing up to this and starting to think about mm. what kind of competition assessment you ought to have. And it's much more complicated. You've got to think about um, what will happen over the next, I don't know, five years or so. Can somebody else come into this market? What are the barriers to entry, mm. given these winner-take-all dynamics? And you have to sort of trade off the very large benefits that consumers get from these services now. People love them. They're great services. <laughs> um, against um, the, the potential loss in future of future innovations or the potential that the companies might start to abuse their market power in some way, perhaps not against customers, but against their suppliers or people working for them. So all of that set of concerns is part of the um, assessment that you've got to think through. And if you do think there's a problem, and loads of people do, um, how you do something about it is really quite hard um, mm. to assess what kinds of remedies. Some people say break them up. Um, Elizabeth Warren in the US, one of the candidates for the presidential Democratic presidential candidacy, um, is saying break them up. But then you start to reduce some of the benefits that consumers are getting. Because remember, my benefit depends on the number of other users. So the mm. scale is actually part of the benefit that consumers get. And also, if you're going to somebody and, and say, you know, you've got Facebook for free, you can stay in touch with all your family, you've got search, uh, which you can't lead your life without, you've got Uber, so you've got access to taxis and lower prices, but it's bad for you, competition isn't working, we'll take all that away. Mm. So that's not something that any sensible regulator or politician is going to do. So you really need to think very carefully about regulation and the unintended consequences. So great example. I was uh, trapped for the day in San Francisco on Monday. I have a rough life. Um, <laughs> and the local newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, had an article about a new regulation in California called AB5, which they had passed to make Uber specifically treat its drivers as employees. And so Uber has been forced to um, change its algorithms to give the drivers more control over what they do. Um, it may possibly degrade the service a little bit, but it tries to comply with the law that says if you have no control over your work, then you're an employee. Meanwhile, all kinds of people who work freelance, musicians, theatre designers, um, horse trainers, have discovered that their business has dried up because mm. their customers don't want to take the risk that they're going to have to treat these freelancers as employees. So the unintended consequences of regulating you know, could be quite significant. You need to think yeah. about it pretty carefully. Cool. And I think one thing that might be worth touching uh, on as well is Bork's uh, antitrust paradox. So kind of um, what, what you were alluding to before about that big isn't necessarily bad in of itself, but it's really about establishing if consumers are being hurt. And that is really hard to do at the moment. Because um, as you said, the benefits and the size are kind of hand in hand as well. Yeah, Robert Bork famously, um, the inspiration for what's called the Chicago School of Antitrust, um, and he focused on prices and said, it doesn't matter if the company's big as long as the price is low. Mm. Um, so we'll, we won't worry about market structure. We will worry about the consequences for consumers. Most antitrust people, competition people would say, we don't just look at price. We look at quality and the range and variety as well. So it's not all about price. There is an increasing movement, though, um, to actually think about market structure as a problem in itself. And that's because... 
once companies get to be so large and powerful, they start to be able to interfere with the political system and write the rules of the market in ways that continue to benefit them. And so, therefore, cement in the possibility, mm. the, the probability that they will continue to dominate the market for always. And you see that the big digital companies are now among the biggest spending lobbyists in Washington, so it's perfectly valid fear. But it doesn't get you around this problem that for consumers, scale is actually part of the benefit. Mm. So what the authorities are now thinking about much more carefully is, should they be allowed to acquire small companies in the way that they have been? Uh, so Facebook, for example, took over Instagram and WhatsApp, and it looks with hindsight like they were snapping up any potential social media competitor while it was still small. Mm. They paid a billion dollars for Instagram, which had, I don't know, a small number of employees and users at the time because they spotted that potential threat. Mm. And the, the competition authorities said, you know, Facebook, social media, Instagram, it's a few pictures and it's small, it's a completely different market. That looks like a mistake with hindsight. So just um, yesterday, the US Federal Trade Commission, which is one of its two main antitrust authorities, announced it was going to do a study of all of the takeovers by the big tech companies that have happened already to right. see if it needs to change its policy going forward. So you can't undo the past. I don't think anybody's, uh, any, any of the regulators are currently talking about undoing those, unlike Elizabeth Warren. Um, but in future, I think it would be much harder for them to take over other companies. So one interesting thing is as well that it's not just that companies are kind of snatching up competitors, but they might also use their established market power in one market to actually enter other markets. Could you talk more about envelopment and uh, that kind of side? Yeah, as you say, we've uh, made up this lovely new jargon word, envelopment mm -hmm. for it. And um, in a way, it's uh, similar to what big companies have often done, which is tying together um, services so that you lock in your consumers more, e um, more easily, more thoroughly. So, you know, you know, might buy your broadband and your TV and your phone service all from one company and you're much less likely to switch mobile providers if you've got a bundle that has all these other things with it. So in a way, envelopment is a, is a bit like that, but it's also using a big customer base to move into other markets. So Uber started with taxis and then it had all the customers, so it moved into food delivery and because it had all the drivers, it could move into logistics more generally. So it's moving out from um, markets where you're already really large into others where you can kind of instantly become large because you've got one side of the market already s sorted. Um, so one other thing that I've heard some people being more concerned about, um, but I would love for you to clarify up, is the worry about price discrimination. So um, typically, monopolies can kind of use information they have about the consumers to charge us as much as we're willing to pay. And there is a bit of a concern as well that with all the data that they have on us, that they might be um, able to do so even better than ever before. Um, how valid do you think that concern is? And do you think that's, that's relevant at all? It's really hard to know how valid it is because we don't have the data to assess it. You know, mm. the companies keep all this data themselves. So let me ask you a question. Um, do you buy books on Amazon? Yeah, I do. And do you find that they are more or less expensive than alternative providers? Definitely a lot cheaper uh, yeah. in my case, yeah. Yeah. If you look at Amazon's revenues and profits, its revenues have rocketed and its profits have been really low. Mm. So it's been um, maximizing sales, I think, rather than profits. And it's mm. been doing that by keeping prices low. So I buy tons of economics books. And I think not only are they cheaper than other economics books, I think... 
it's, it almost dynamically cuts the price because if I dither on something and it looks like I might not buy it after all, mm. they will they will cut the, the algorithm will cut the price to try and tip me over the edge into into buying it. Um, so, but you know that's just books. It isn't really clear in general. The there haven't been many studies of online versus offline pricing. They look like they're quite similar. Mm. rather than being higher online. But you might argue that we've just not got to the stage where any um, online retailer is dominant enough to start exploiting monopoly power. Because yeah. even Amazon, you know, there, there are still other options. They can never raise the price above what you would pay in the bookstore. So I think that sort of caps what the algorithms can do. But it's an area where we need to use the legal powers to get data out of the companies to find out what's really happening. So one area, I guess, where I would be more concerned about is kind of uh, like plane tickets or booking a holiday or the like there, where it's a lot less harder to switch to a competitor. So, for example, if I've got a, a flight the next day, I might have to uh, book it regardless. And it's I think in those kind of cases where I, I would be worried that if a company knows um, how much I'm earning or um, how desperately I need that flight or something, that that's where they're able to, to exploit that kind of information. Yeah, it's a good example, but it shows you this isn't particularly a digital problem, mm. that um, that kind of price discrimination has been um, done for a long time by um, airlines and train companies, mm. um, depending on what time of day and how close to the day to travel you are and so on. So a lot of companies with market power try to uh, apply price discrimination to get as much as possible out of different cate mm. categories of con consumer. Um, so I think it is a worry. I would be more worried about some of the other tricks that the price comparison websites play on you. Okay. Like the little flashing lights that say, oh, you're looking at this, you must buy this immediately because three <laughs> other people are looking at it too. Yeah. Who knows if that's true? Uh, I think a lot of consumers don't actually know that you've got to pay to be listed on many of these price, price comparison websites. Yeah. Maybe that knowledge is just now seeping out. And that distorts behaviour because... Anybody who wants to get into the top 10 has to pay some money and they've got to compensate for, not, not only pay the fee, but compensate for having to have a good deal by charging other customers more. Mm. So you get what are called loyalty penalties, where new customers get great deals and customers who don't switch gets, get you know worse and worse deals yeah. as time goes yeah. by. So listening to this, it sounds like there are maybe two worries with um, big tech monopolies. One is the standard worry about monopolies that it would drive down innovation because it drives down competition. And the other worry you mentioned is price discrimination because they have all this data on what we're going to buy and what we're not going to buy. So they can conspire to um, arrange prices in certain ways. But there's another kind of foggier worry, which you've just touched on there, that they can manipulate us in other ways, not just with changing prices, but because they have all this information, these means of, of changing little variables. There's this kind of worry that we're influenced in, in in shadier ways can you speak to that it's it's a great question and um data is one of the distinctive things about these companies because they do obviously just accumulate tons of it they do also do seem to use it to embed their market power because you learn so much about people you can tailor the service better to them so you get more customers so then you learn more about what makes a good service so you get a feedback loop that way and if you're an advertising model as well, you can target the ads better so you get more money, so you can make a better service. And again, you get that, that feedback loop. Um, so one of the remedies that competition authorities are looking at is 
um, requirements for people being able to download and transfer data in particular formats or or requiring the companies to actually share data um, with new entrants. Mm. Um, but this manipulation, you know, again, it's not particularly digital. Ever since Mad Men days, <laughs> we've had companies trying to manipulate our behaviour. Um, they can just do it better and faster. And so A-B testing is absolutely standard in any digital company. You just it always are trying things, trying different prices with different groups of consumers. So I think it clearly is um, easier to benefit, to uh, manipulate people. I think it's, I don't know how to think about whether that's good or bad. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, <laughs> I, like, it, it kind of seems to me as a bit existential because like when economists kind of deal with kind of welfare analysis, we're always talking about consumer welfare. But if a company makes you have a want that you wouldn't otherwise have and then meets that want with their product. Is that increasing consumer welfare or is that, like, how do we even think about that? Well, I think it's a really um, fundamental question about how we think about welfare and economics and it's mm. about the overlap between economics and philosophy because um, all of our welfare analysis is based on this assumption of fixed preferences. Mm. Fixed preferences for all goods, for all times and future, for all possible markets. Yeah. It's clearly not like that anyway. <laughs> But it's more than ever not like that in this very, um, you know, dynamic um, digital economy. Um, and yet if we don't have that, we don't know how to think about the welfare. We don't know what's good or not. Um, yeah. And, and you know, dealing with socially influenced preferences is one of the big things that I think economics is going to have to face up to. Mm. So it sounds really useful that... Amazon can use all this data they collect about us to figure out what books we might like to buy next. And Netflix yeah. can figure out what films we might enjoy based on what we've already enjoyed. But not only will they predict what you might enjoy, but they can also influence or manipulate what you might already enjoy so that you're more predictable. And I guess that gets to the, the idea here that there's a difference between predicting based on your fixed preferences and just creating new preferences because it's, it's more straightforward. I think this takes you to... Um, this is probably your territory and not mine, <laughs> but to your sense about um, um, values and what creates human well-being and flourishing in the end. And you can ask that about the pre-digital economy. You know, is it really part of an essential part of human flourishing that we can choose any flavour of breakfast cereal that we want to? Or would actually it be fine if we just had porridge all the time? Um, you could think of a, a recommendation engine that rather than saying, you have read these 26 economics books, here's a number 27 economics mm. book that you might read. It could say, you know, why don't you just go and have a nice walk in the countryside instead? <laughs> so you could have a, a completely different philosophy for your recommendation engine. So the, the last kind of topic that I want to talk about before we kind of wrap things up, because I'm aware we're, we're running uh, out of time, is uh, two defences I've heard about digital monopolies. And I just kind of want to run, run these by you to, to see what you kind of think. So one thing we've already talked about is that digital monopolies um, aren't you know, as dangerous as we might think because they're actually enhancing social welfare and part of um, them being monopolies actually allows them to create better products. Um, another thing I've heard and that we've actually kind of um, hinted at before is that a lot of these monopolies um, for a long period of time are actually really unprofitable because, as you said, they're competing not in the market but for the market. And in order to win that, they're actually losing a lot of money. If you look at Netflix or you look at Uber, they've actually been losing money pretty consistently year on year. So they kind of deserve this monopoly status in order to actually make some money so that they can pay off those initial investments. And that kind of justifies it. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? That's clearly the case. That so, um, if you 
suffer a period of losses, then you want to have a period of profits to cover the losses and give you a reasonable economic return over that kind of time period. Um, but I think it's an open question because why are the big venture capital firms putting ludicrous amounts of money into Uber? Um, it can surely only be because they expect to have some monopoly rent yeah. return to it in the end. Um, so I don't think it's possible to state definitively that that's fine, there are bound to be some losses. So we don't worry about the profits for 20 years. And the, the, the other defence that I've kind of heard is that it's actually really hard to kind of categorise these companies and therefore to even to be able to know whether they're a monopoly or not. So one interesting thing, I think, which was pointed out by, by Peter Thiel uh, in, in his book was that it's really interesting when you see how Google sells itself to its shareholders and to regulators. So when it's talking to its shareholders in its uh, annual reports, it always talks about being the number one search engine and having this many users and being so dominant and you know trying to kind of drum up support and, and boost its share value. But whenever it talks about, uh, uh, whenever it talks with regulators, it then says, oh, you know, we're just one of many players in the advertisement market. And there's like a big difference about, okay, is Google the most dominant search engine uh, in the world? Or is it one small or sizable, but by no means dominant player in the much larger advertisement market? Even in the advertising market, Google has a significant market share. Mm. And there are competition inquiries going on just about digital advertising. So I don't think that completely gets them off the hook. Yeah. Uh, whatever way you look at it, Google, yeah. Google is big. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And I, you know, I think the platform companies know that regulation is coming their way, and their concern now is to, um, you know, try and avert the worst possible consequences of that. I think you know, regulators have got to be really alert to um, the fact that mm. these very powerful, well-resourced companies will try and shape it their own way. But at the same time, it's really easy to get regulation wrong. Yeah. And this is a very complicated territory. Cool. So change is happening and we might not like it all. So the, the very last question I'll ask, and feel free to answer this very quickly, um, is just three books uh, that you would recommend to listeners uh, if they want to find out more about this topic or other topics that you're passionate about in general. I have to recommend my own book, Market, <laughs> State and People, which isn't just about digital, but it's about how you apply economic analysis to all kinds of policy questions. Uh, Thomas Philippon, The Great Reversal, is an excellent book by an economist at New York University about decreasing competition in the economy generally. It's focused on America, but the um, analysis is much more common. There's yeah. um, a very provocative book by an American, another American called Matt Stoller, who is very, very anti-big tech. Um, but it's a historical perspective, mm. which I think is really interesting. And it takes you all the way from the early trust-busting days um, up to the digital giants and what we ought to do about them. Cool. Diane Cole, thank you so much. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about Professor Cole's research and the tech economy generally, you can read the write-up that accompanies every episode at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Diane. There you will find a summary of our conversation, as well as links to Professor Cole's book recommendations, all the articles referenced, and other further readings. If you have a minute, we would also greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you are hearing us from. We're just starting out, so any advice helps improve the show and others find out about us. If you want to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the description. Thank you for listening. <laughs>